The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community. It's created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. And I'm really delighted to be able to welcome our two speakers. Uh, who are going to talk about this. Ben Wormsley from University of Leeds uh, is Professor of Cultural Engagement there, but he's also Director of the National Centre for Cultural Value. And I'm saying in the UK, Ben, or is it just England? It is the UK-wide. He's also author of the 2019 book, Audience Engagement in the Performing Arts, and many other things. And Antar Gianni, who's also going to be speaking who is Chief Executive and Founder of the Audience Agency and Co-Director for the Centre of Cultural Value. Both Ben and Anne have worn many hats in the cultural landscape, Um, so uh, I'm very grateful that we're going to benefit from their expertise, not only on the Centre for Cultural Value, but on the questions that uh, surround this topic more broadly. So please, Ben and Anne, would you like to come up and uh, take the next session? Okay, thanks Eve, Um, and thank you to Jeff for that really useful kind of background to the Centre for Cultural Value. So it's it's great to be here and to be able to tell you a little bit about the journey that we've been on over the last uh, nearly two and a half years now since the Centre was established in, um, when was it, October 2019, pre-pandemic in that other world that we just about remember. Um, So what I'm going to do, hopefully for less less than half an hour, is, is just give you an overview of, um, of the, the origins of the centre, talk a little bit about, about what we do, the different strands of our activity, how we took up the baton, I suppose, that Jeff and Patrizia left us, um, and tried to grapple with some of those really complex questions around cultural value. Um, and of course, the first thing that we had to do was, was kind of come up with a mission statement, like any good arts and cultural manager uh, and I, you know, I'm like Anne, I guess, after years of trying to teach students about the importance of missions, was in the unenviable position of having to develop one myself, which is never that easy. Um, and, you know, in all seriousness, what we didn't want to do at the centre was to have another academic debate for five years. We've got five years funding initially. Um, and we were, we were hyper aware that we could have spent five years trying to define cultural value and, you know, bringing lots of interesting voices into that discussion to really deconstruct different notions of cultural value. Um, and we, we thought that wouldn't be the best you know, way to spend the resources that were invested in us. So instead, we, we took a really pragmatic approach, as you'll see here. Um, and I, personally, I certainly deliberately resist any reductive definition of cultural value, because as Eve said earlier on, you know, culture is presumed probably one of the most slippery, if not the most slippery, concepts uh, that we have in our language, and value, of course, equally so. So the conflation of those two, you know, wicked problems, I've called it before, really means that definitions lie beyond any simplistic um, extrapolation. So we, we defined ourselves really around this, this desire, this vision to build some kind of shared understanding of, of quite simply, the differences that culture makes to people's lives. Um, and, you know, following on from the philosophy of the report, we very much wanted to embrace everyday creativity. We didn't just want to look at the, the funded arts sector. So we do look at arts, culture, heritage and screen and um, 
all sorts of iterations of everyday people's cultural lives. Um, and then the second point here is, is the kind of so what question, I think. Um, and we started off with this idea of, you know, we really wanted cultural policy to be more evidence-based. Um, and like Jeff, we certainly didn't mean uh, in terms of, you know, economic uh, terms or in terms of quantitative data and analysis or in any kind of way of measuring culture. Um, I, I mean, as Eve said at the title of my book, I'm an audience researcher, a qualitative audience researcher. So, um, yeah, personally, I'm very interested in, in the complexities and the insights that qualitative and creative methods can bring to understanding and helping us grapple with some of these really complicated concepts. Um, so when we talk about evidence, you know, we, we really mean capturing, I suppose, um, and illuminating these differences and building an evidence base through a whole range of complementary methods and methodologies, quantitative and qualitative, whether that's biometrics, for example, whether that's artists working as researchers, whether that is creative drawing, people like Matthew Reason have done brilliantly with young children watching theatre, and we really need to kind of harness all of these methods and bring them together to really try and capture and understand the value and impact of what culture does. Um, and then the pandemic came along, didn't it, and changed everything. And we realised quite quickly as a very new centre that we needed to do that work ourselves. We needed to go out and understand how the cultural sector was being impacted by the pandemic. Um, and of course, this, the pandemic itself was in the wake of Black Lives Matter and of course the climate crisis. And so this last bit of our vision is this, you know, this drive, I suppose, to really try and foster um, a fairer cultural sector, a more diverse, more equitable, and ultimately a more regenerative sector. Um, I'm not going to say too much about our COVID research. I'm happy to talk about that later if people are interested. But one thing it really did do is show, kind of highlight a cultural sector on its knees, um, you know, exhausted, burnt out were phrases we heard all the time in interviews. So this idea of really kind of trying to do something that is more regenerative, to, to produce less, to do more reflective practice, as Jeff was saying, to, to evaluate better and more rigorously, to engage audiences more deeply so they have deeper, more longitudinal experiences. So this idea of doing less more that was everywhere, wasn't it? It was really prevalent in the pandemic. We're really pushing now that the cultural sector and policymakers and funders hold on to this idea of doing less, but doing it better and more equitably. So that's what we try and do. Uh, we're a tiny centre. Um, people always are really surprised when I say this, but at the moment, there are about four people working uh, full-time equivalent. So there are, there are six of us, most of us working part-time, including me. So uh, that obviously has its challenges uh, in terms of managing expectations of what we can achieve. Um, but what it does do on a positive note is mean that we, we have to always work in partnership. Um, and we, we collaborate pretty much in everything that we do. So as you'll see here, we have uh, a range of partners across the UK, so some core university partners like Queen Margaret's in Edinburgh and uh, Sheffield and Liverpool universities. Obviously, the audience agency are our core sector partner. Um, and we're, we're funded by three very different funders, which, again, I'm really happy to talk about for those of you who are interested. But what this does mean, you know, we've got a, a kind of academic research council, we've got Paul Hamlin Foundation, and we've got Arts Council England. Um, now, you might imagine that could be a bit of a nightmare if it goes wrong, and we have had our moments. I think we'd all agree to that. 
But when it, when it works well, what it does do is really help us to focus on the key drivers behind a centre like ours. So, you know, very briefly and reductively, from AHRC's perspective, their goal is to, to bring to light existing research, to bring it from behind the paywall, to synthesise it and make it accessible to the cultural sector, to make research useful, if you like, and have more impact. Um, Paul Hamlin Foundation are very keen to look at different methods of evaluation, particularly uh, iterative approaches and working really carefully with their uh, grant recipients to, again, build this evidence base, to upskill the sector in terms of how we're capturing value and impact. And the Arts Council are really keen to, to make the case to funders and policymakers, to government, um, to, you know, to really uh, pursue policy engagement to, again, build this evidence base and, and use it, as Jeff was saying, to harness that evidence base to bring, ultimately, more money into the cultural and creative industries, as our European partners do. Um, we again realised pretty quickly that we'd need to develop uh, lots of networks, so our, our kind of model is to be a network of networks really, and we do this partly through our affiliate partners, so you'll see here a whole range of uh, weird and wonderful partners, um, and I often say we, there are kind of three groups of partner really. There are people we deliver things with, obviously the audience agency at the heart of that, also people like the Arts Marketing Association, we share our uh, online platform called Culture Hive with. Uh, Tate, we're co-supervising a, a collaborative doctoral award with on the future of the, uh, the museum, the digital museum, digital engagement. So we have delivery partners. We have uh, national organisations like the National Theatres here of Wales and Scotland and London. Uh, sorry, England, I should have said. Um, who you know we, we absolutely work with to to have access to that national those national art forms at that kind of national level, and then we have membership organisations like the Museums Association who give us access to their members and help us to cascade and disseminate our search. So our history and you know all this because uh, Jeff's uh, articulated it far more comprehensively than I can or have time to. But really, I think all I want to say here is that we, you know, we, we're very proud to be the, the kind of tangible legacy of that cultural value project. And I really would recommend, uh, me and Anne were saying today, we need to reread that report because it is now six years old and I didn't know it had been translated into Japanese, which might test my language skills. But um, it, it's a wonderful report. I'm sure some of you have read it. And it, uh, it really summarises 70 very different kinds of projects and a whole range of really interesting methods to try and capture value from, you know, the econometric to the highly, highly artistic and creative. Um, so our funding, um, we, we receive £2 million in funding. The overall cost of the centre is £2.5 million, which does sound a lot of money, doesn't it? But I, I often say we're like a, a small to mid-scale arts organisation because it's, it's £400,000 a year. And by the time we've taken core costs out of that, we have just under a million pounds to spend over five years. So again, you know, we're, we're very grateful. It's, it was a generous uh, investment and, a, and an ambitious investment, but we, we do have to kind of eke out every pound to have as much value and impact as we want to have. But you'll see here, as Jeff was saying really, that what the centre does do is focus very much on uh, this first-hand individual experience of arts and culture and on creative methods. We're, we're not particularly interested, to be honest, in uh, economic impact, 
Um, I'm more skeptical than Jeff, I think, it's fair to say, about econometric methods like subjective well-being uh, and hedonic pricing. I, I just, I, they just don't work for me, if I'm really honest. I, don't think, I think they capture the least interesting aspects of, of arts and culture, but happy to disagree with him on that one. So our ethos, um, I mean, Anne was instrumental in this, actually, this idea of, you know, cultural value is so political. Uh, and as, as Jeff said in his talk, the first question always really is, who wants to know and why? And the answer usually is something very deeply political. People have, um, have agendas when they're talking about cultural value. Um, so we were, we were really, you know, hyper-aware um, that we, we needed to take a, a kind of pluralistic approach to that. Uh, sorry, bear with me a second. That we, we needed to have a manifesto that acknowledged that there are lots of diverse perspectives on cultural value, that no one has ownership of culture or what culture can do. Um, and importantly, this idea that, you know, everyone values culture. The, the kind of Raymond Williams idea, whether, whether it's fish and chips or going to watch you know, the football or a pint of Guinness, obviously, here. Um, culture comes in all shapes and sizes, but people don't always have equal opportunities to engage with culture. So there is a, you know, there's a deficit model in terms of, of engagement and accessibility, as we all know. And the pandemic has made that worse, of course. So um, what do we do? I, I think it's quite useful to kind of break down our activities into these three key areas of research and policy and evaluation. Um, and I think, you know, the centre is probably at its best when we're working in that nexus between those three different areas. Um, so I'll, I'll briefly just go through all of those kind of core activities and explain how we try and add value in those different spheres of, of influence, if you like. Um, and then where we add value is, again, um, whenever we can, at the intersection of uh, the arts and cultural sector and the heritage sector, academic research and cultural policy. So we're, we're kind of hyper-aware of uh, you know, historic and, and really damaging divides between these different audiences um, and the, you know, the, diff the disparate nature of people's interests and timescales of publication, for example, that don't always work for cultural sector partners. Uh, and our job really is, is very much one of brokerage, to try and bring these audiences who, let's be honest, can be sometimes quite fractious with one another, into constructive and productive debate and dialogue um, and to work together wherever we can. So probably the, one of the best examples of that is our Collaborate funding. So we have, we have a, a fund of £200,000 over the next two years um, and we invite arts and cultural organisations to come up with innovative ideas and research questions of things that they really want to explore. So, for example, one of our shortlisted projects is the, the UK's Craft Council um, and their attempts to decolonise their activities and to, to absolutely pursue an anti-racism agenda across the craft sector. Um, and we match, then, these projects with academic researchers through a, a kind, of, kind of dating agency, I guess, is partly the model. Um, you know, we look for people with innovative methods who want to be quite pioneering and try something different. Um, and we then create a cohort of, say, 10 to 15 projects. So we're just about to announce that cohort. And then we'll take them over the next 12 months as a cohort uh, with some kind of mediation and brokering and facilitation uh, and, and really try and capture all of the findings and impacts of those different projects. 
So we can, it's kind of action research in a way. We're really trying to inculcate this culture of research within and across the cultural sector. Um, and for academics, I, I think what surprised me actually when I did a workshop for academics who wanted to join the programme, um, what became really transparent was that academics often are lacking these cultural partners and they want to do research but they don't quite know what to kind of hang it on. Um, and so there was a real you know, moment of clarity for me of saying that there's a lot of value we can add as a centre just by unearthing the kind of research questions that cultural organisations have. Um, so, you know, hopefully a mutually beneficial kind of programme that is bringing these three different audiences together. So some of the things we do, just to give you a flavour of, of our kind of tone, I suppose, and our outputs. Uh, so we produce digests. Uh, we have one full-time postdoc researcher um, who synthesises, you know, all of the published, peer-reviewed published research and the best grey literature on given areas. I'll say more about those, those topics in a minute. So their, again, unenviable sometimes task is to review and, and synthesise and scope all of that research and to produce a five-page digest um, that has recommendations for policymakers to really try and say, as Jeff was saying, you know, for example, we, there is some evidence that writing musical lyrics can absolutely help young people with mental health issues, but there's very little evidence about you know, social prescribing, for example. So we, we really, again, try and shine a spotlight on, on gaps in knowledge, but to, to really kind of amplify the evidence base where that does exist, and then make recommendations to funders. But, you know, our job is to try and make research exciting and interesting uh, and, you know, as, as engaging as possible. So we have how-to guides, we have podcasts, we have events, obviously, symposia and conferences and webinars. We often partner with people like the British Council, for example, on webinars. Uh, we have animations that we commission. So any, any you know, way we can try and engage as broad an audience as possible with research is, we'll, we'll give it a go, put it that way. So again, I'd, I'd invite you just to have a look on our platform and play around with the different kind of outputs that we're producing. And again, to get some feedback on those would be really useful. Uh, so, first of all, research. I'll talk about research and I'll talk about policy and then I'll hand over to Anne who's going to talk about our evaluation work. Um, so research, our job really is to, as I said, to, to pick out the key insights from what we already know and to highlight areas where there is a lack of research and insight. Um, and one of the first jobs we did when we first got the funding was, was do a little tour of the UK, didn't we? Just before COVID, it was, it was timed quite well. Um, and we really wanted to scope out what our key audience groups would want from the centre. So we asked them, you know, what, what are the themes that you're grappling with? You know, what are you interested in in terms of programming? Uh, what do you struggle with when you're putting together a funding bid? Everyone in, in England at the moment is pretty much putting together a funding bid. It's that time of, of, the, of the cycle for Arts Council England. Uh, and this is really what came back at us. So first of all was this question of culture, health and well-being. Um, and as Jeff said, we have to be really careful with this, that it doesn't become too instrumentalised. But it, but it is huge. Um, and there's a lot of money available outside the cultural sector's funding. So it is important, of course, to work with the Department for Health, with the NHS, to, you know, to talk about what we know and what we don't know, to make the case for qualitative inquiry into arts and health research, not just RCTs. 
Um, so that was our first theme. We've just finished that. So we've done pretty much two years of reviewing and synthesis and scoping and produced five digests. And we're about to produce a vision paper that really pulls all of that together and says, you know, here are the areas where there's evidence. Here is where we would absolutely call for further investment. Um, and, and here are some of the kind of infrastructural problems in funding arts and health research. So for example, there are far too many short-term, small-scale projects out there that really fail to build an evidence base. So it's, it's money um, sometimes very well spent in the very short term, but there's very rarely kind of follow-on follow research. So we don't know the longitudinal impact on participants in these kinds of projects. So that's uh, going to come out in April, and then we'll, we're going to try and hit some policymakers on the head with that uh, and hopefully make some positive change. Um, the second area, of course, was this uh, COVID research, which I'm not going to say much more about now. Um, the third area was, of course, cultural participation. So currently what we're doing is reviewing all of the literature on everyday creativity, which, as you can imagine, is also a bit of a nightmare to define and to, to build parameters around. But we, we knew this was you know, vitally important. And, of course, I know uh, Emma and Stephen are going to say more this afternoon about this, but it is... The, the kind of direction of travel of, uh, of UK policymakers is to really invest much more in, uh, in, in local and in kind of place-based funding, for example, like Creative People and Places. But there is a shift away from kind of traditional investment in organisations. Um, we're looking at cultural data and evaluation. We're, we're hyper aware of the problem we have in the cultural sector, I think, globally around really fragmented data sets that don't really speak to each other, um, of you know, fears, kind of terror sometimes in art sector workers about how to use data, uh, how to use it to, to conduct rigorous evaluation, for example. So we're trying to fix this in various ways by talking to key partners. And ultimately, maybe, hopefully, to, to, to establish a kind of national cultural observatory where we can get as much cultural sector data in one place as possible to open it up for you know, big data uh, analytics, for example, cross-referencing with health data, with retail data, etc. Uh, and then our final theme, research theme, will be community, place and identity. Um, again, as Jeff was saying, this huge question, uh, it's massive in England at the moment, about you know, levelling up, um, place shaping, how can we re rebuild empty towns and villages and cities after the pandemic, um, post-industrial towns in the north of England in particular, where, where I'm from. Um, so, you know, questioning uh, and, and being very sceptical and critical around historic attempts to, to create creative cities, for example, and really looking at the, at the benefits and evidence for micro-investments and local investment is something that we're... The social role of the artist, for example, is something we'll be doing next year. Um, so, uh, one, of our, one of the projects that we're doing is we've called Making Data Work for Public Sector Policy, uh, and on the back of that we're trying to build a, a data framework to look at, you know, what would kind of common data standards need to, to address, what would the ethical questions and protocols be in order to be able to build this kind of national platform or database, if you like. So that's work that we're about to finish at the moment, we've done a kind of scoping study, uh, and we're going to put in another funding bid to hopefully try to realise some of those ambitions. And then the second one was this COVID-19 research. So all I'll really say about that was that it was a 15-month project 
we produced a report um, earlier this month, or the, the end of last month, uh, which you can download. A uh, 70-page report. There's also an exec summary. You'll be pleased to hear. Um, and, you know, obviously it told a, a pretty sorry tale of the extent to which COVID exacerbated a lot of the, the structural problems that existed pre-pandemic, whether that was the exhausted workforce, the undiverse workforce, the, you know, exploitation of freelancers, the appalling skew of, of engagement with culture, etc., etc. And I think, like most crises, um, COVID just exacerbated all of those existing problems. But it also did some, like all crises, it had some really positive um, impacts too. So there are some green shoots around digital, and Anne is much more of an expert on that than, than I am. But, you know, we also saw an explosion in collegiality, for example. We saw networks arise, a peer support, and this sense of kind of being in a campaign together across the sector. So there was, there was lots of momentum, there was lots of creative responses, lots of organisations, of course, kind of had to pivot to a, a kind of hyper-local focus for the first time and ask themselves really serious questions about their relevance to their neighbourhoods, to their communities. So, you know, uh, time will tell, but I, you know, we kind of end our report saying we are at an inflection point here. There's a there are some really hard choices for the cultural sector and funders to make. We could snap back to the bad old days or we could really start to do things in a fundamentally different way and attract our you know, newer, younger, diverse audiences and workers. Um, so, policy, and then I'll uh, pass over to Anne. We, um, we have a ridiculously ambitious goal here, which is, certainly from an English <laughs> perspective, which is to place culture at the heart of local, regional and national policy making. Now, we know that's not going to happen in five years. It is purely aspirational, um, and yet it is happening in Wales to quite a large extent at the moment. So because of the, the Future Generations Act, policy culture is always now by, is mandated to be a consideration in any major spending decision in Wales, which is really quite radical and quite extraordinary. Um, so one of our jobs with policy is really to try and build networks and to, to influence really by, you know, sharing good practice like what we're seeing in Wales across the UK and ultimately beyond. So part of this is us trying to say we need to, you know, put our head above the parapet and, and talk to our international partners about the, the very different contexts in which cultural value um, is situated and takes place. So we, we build networks, we share good practice, we, you know, we have webinars to try and demystify cultural policy, we bring D DCMS, you know, into the room to talk to cultural, cultural organisations and academics, and we really just try and broker new relationships between different policy actors. Um, and again, <clears throat> you know, communicate our findings as clearly as we can to build this evidence base and to, to keep fighting, you know, to keep making the case for investment in qualitative methodologies, to invest in more rigorous evaluation that will help us all to make the case to policymakers. Um, so I'm going to hand over to Anne to talk a bit about evaluation. Yes, I'm just, I'm, I, am, I should say I'm just continuing the same story here, but it's probably worth just rewinding very briefly and going back to um, Ben's Venn diagram of, of a sector 
academics and policy. Um, and just to say, so what is the audience agency doing in this mix? I mean, there were, there were some other bids um, to, uh, to take on the Centre for Cultural Value. And, and I think one of the reasons that our bid won was because actually we were modelling the approach that we wanted to take in as much as that we were a sector organisation, very, very much embedded in the sector, you know, really working in a very, very applied way, definitely, I mean, we have some nice academics who work with us, but, you know, but basically quite a lot of our staff are really sort of hands-on uh, people that come from the sector. Um, we do a lot of research, but it's very, very applied. Uh, it's very much to, you know, for the person who's paying for it or for, um, you know, small project-funded things and so on. So um, we were sort of modelling in a way that bringing together University of Leeds and uh, the audience agency, we were kind of doing that thing about we've got our feet on the ground in this world and yours. And actually one of the things I found very interesting is that I think we've not just modelled it in our structure, but actually in the way we work, we become much closer. It's really informed the work of my organisation in quite a major way, actually. So I think this coming together um, across those divides, you know, pulling the three circles a bit close together, you know, I'd say one of our successes to date has been that, actually. So that's a bit of background of why. The other thing is that the, the I think the other yin and yang thing might also be that, um, as Ben said, his, his background is really in, in qual, and although our team, we've got a very fantastic qual team uh, in inside our research uh, group but we we are famous for doing quite a lot of quant so the audience agency works with about a thousand organizations every year who give us their data through two different sources and we do a lot of data aggregation just building a big national data set of audiences and what we can do with that and the kind of insight that brings uh, again i think it's sharpened up the narrative around what we know and these uh, this kind of you know this big uh, sort of quant data that we hold on in, as custodians on behalf of the sector. Again, I think it's really amplified and enhanced what we've been able to do there. But we do a little bit of, you do the qual and I do the quant, and we go, and I go, well, you know, sometimes quant has a, has a role to play and vice versa. Anyway, so that's a bit of background about why we're doing it, and also why um, uh, the, the, my colleague and I at the Audience Agency have done quite a lot of work on evaluation principles, which I'm just going to talk about very briefly. Um, the evaluation principles, interestingly, when we did those first consultation sessions that Ben mentioned, I was actually really surprised. We talked to us, we must have talked to over 200 organisations in the room, um, when we could be in the room, as well as doing a, a kind of you know, online survey as well. Um, and I was surprised by how many cultural practitioners told us that what they were interested in was how to do evaluation better. Uh, and I, I was really surprised by that. I thought they would be much more interested in where's all the great research, we can't access it, we don't know where it is, we want to know where the information that will make our case or you know, will help us do it in our work. But actually that was quite a, quite a long way down their list, as you know, the sector practitioners in particular. What they wanted was reassurance in confidence building, um, knowing how to choose the right methods, knowing what good looks like. For sure, people wanted very practical support uh, in terms of valuation. Now, we, we like, as Geoffrey mentioned, we're very, very against the idea of doing how-to toolkits on the grounds that, that that really encourages a slightly you know, unhelpful, one-size-fits-all uh, kind of mentality. What we did want to do, though, was to equip people with the understanding to make better decisions. So um, we gradually work. I think it was your idea, the evaluation principles, but I think it's, it's been really... I, I've become more convinced over time that it, it can really make that transformation within organisations about making them feel much more confident. And, of course, really importantly, we need that to happen if we're going to convince the policymakers that we know what we're talking about and that we can articulate value in a way that is useful to them. So this, this conversation between the three sets of organisations, I think the evaluation principles are a useful 
pivot point around those, those three different kinds of conversations. So to, how do we come up with them? You can imagine it could be slightly contentious. So we worked with about uh, 40, broadly 40 researchers, some of them, some of them academics, some of them in organisations, some of them evaluators for hire, um, a particular group that I you know, really relate to. And we kind of just got everybody in a virtual room and we crashed through, you know, we had some quite divergent conversations, all the things it could be, and then we gradually started to narrow down to come up with these, um, these valuation principles. Um, again, of course, the, the principles are great, but actually it turned out that, in a sense, you come up with a bunch of what's not to like principles, because actually we're all very agreed about the, the principles. So I think the, the difficulty is going to be how we really start to translate those things into practice. And we've got a number of different bits of programme around how we make this fly. And one of the things I want to do in our first set of uh, workshops that we're going to be doing this year is to ask people to talk about why it's difficult to do it in practice. So I'm going to do a big reveal in a moment so that when you actually see what they are. But anyway, um, so there is a whole programme of support around this. Again, not telling people, you know, do this and it will solve all your problems, but equipping people to make good decisions. That's the point of the principles, really. Um, we're also working our way to try some things out so we can do a big MOOC um, in 2023. Uh, so, and, and I can't, every time I talk about this with people in the sector, they go, oh God, that sounds amazing. So there's clearly still a huge appetite. So again, equipping people to make good decisions around evaluation. Um, big thing for us really, um, you'll hear that if we campaign for anything, it's this notion of capturing value evaluation for learning, not as advocacy. And so again, the evaluation principles are an important place where we can play out what does that actually mean. Um, so it's, it sits right at the centre of many things from our point of view. We're doing a lot around it. We've got lots of future ideas and we would love to collaborate with others who are interested in that area as well. But here we go. What are they? There are about 17 altogether and we've grouped them under four headings and you'll see what I mean about, you know, in a sense, what's not to like. So beneficial. Uh, within the beneficial bracket, there are a few in there. Um, they're all online, by the way. Um, do go and have a, have a little look. Um, we also know that we go, we're not going to get it right first time and these things change. So we've also imagine the principles as something quite fluid. We're imagining that we're going to have debates about this or we're going to have some events which are less about how-to and more about debating. What does this mean? What is it, do, we really, do we think this is right? Perhaps more targeted academics, which might be something you're interested in joining us for. Um, so this is where they are at the moment. Comment, please, tell us what you think because they can move on. But this notion of beneficial, so beneficial to the people you're involving beneficial to the, the, the person doing the research, but also to the people that they are doing the research with. Putting learning first, learning over advocacy, um, you know, that, that we have high standards of, eth of ethics and the ethics may be different in different settings and so on. And that actually, whatever you are evaluating, it will result in practicable knowledge. It will change something. Robust, clearly, and there's quite a lot in there, as you can imagine, about rigour in methods, um, notions of open, openness and independence, which we debated hotly, as you can imagine. Um, but a really important issue around, particularly the cultural sector, a sector that's made up of lots of micro-organisations, was the notion of proportionality, that actually um, robust still meant that good enough for the scale of organisation involved and their resources, deliverable. Um, you know, one of the issues that we came across a lot talking to people was uh, the kind of gap between the expectation of funders and stakeholders and what small organisations are realistically able to do. So proportionate, good enough for the task at hand and not, you know, not, not um, overbaked. So a really important area there, clearly. People-centred. Again, uh, a lot of consensus in our group around people-centred. And we, we, we asked ourselves a lot, you know, are there, we looked at other evaluation 
um, frameworks, actually, other evaluation principles. I think we looked at one for the UN, we looked at some used in health and so on, and we realised very quickly that there, you don't just need a generic set of evaluation principles. There were lots of things that were particular to our sector and where our sector is at right now, which is why we think they're, they're fluid. So this notion of people-centred felt like a very right-now issue and that actually perhaps the... You know, if we'd been having this conversation 10 years ago, we may not have come to the same conclusions about the notion of people-centred. But the idea that um, we think of, you know, we, we, we bake empathetic ways of working into our, our research methodologies and so on, that we do seek to have as many voices and perspectives in our, in our, in our um, evaluation methods as we can, that we are socially engaged and so on. Um, so, so a big plank of work around people-centred, love to know what you think about that. And finally, the notion of connected that we think about interoperability, that we think about sharing the findings, that we make our processes transparent in order that others can compare, take them up, improve on the methodologies themselves. So I hope you can hear how these are sort of tracking back to some of the things that uh, Geoffrey talks about in his very aspirational set of aspirations that in a way they set us in that report. So um, please do have a look. We, we would love to hear a little bit more. I'm just going to finish off the rest of the story, really. Um, ben, do just dive in at this point. Um, so what else are we doing at the moment? So, we, so Ben talked about um, our COVID-19 research and how important that's been. Uh, really interestingly, I think that has given us the platform for a whole different engagement with policymakers. I think without this piece of important, current, on-point piece of primary research, we would not have been in there with the policymakers in the same way, or you wouldn't have done a magnificent job um, going on there at the moment. But we've also been working with people who are, you know, who, who are more used to working on the policy front, and I think that's been very interesting for us. Um, the vision paper on cultural health and well-being. So again, wrapping up our first theme, what we what we managed to find out so far there, and again, I think that's very much about policy engagement as well as it was such, such a practice. And ben mentioned the marvellous Collaborate Funding Programme, which I think is going to be really exciting. Again, that's the sandpit, the, the if you like, where we are going to be able to talk about new ways, the hierarchy of methodology, challenging it through actively through the Collaborate Funding. Um, the Research Digest has talked about um, the development of the Value and Culture Platform, which, uh, do you mean YARN by this? Yeah. By the way? Yeah. yeah. So this is, a, this is a kind of platform that actually allows us to hear the voices of uh, participants and audiences. So you know, going right direct to audience, which again was a, or to, to, to people which is one of our uh, early ambitions. And we're just about to launch the very popular podcast set, uh, series, Reflecting Value. So again, uh, do please interact with these things and tell us what you think. So I think we're going to end on some challenges by way of launching into a short conversation by the looks of it. And um, so I, I think my favourite challenges, I'll, I'll, come, I'll come on, you know, I'm going to hand, uh, let Ben come on this as well. But I think there is something about just listening to Geoffrey earlier on about the sheer scope of where you could go with this. So I think I, I particularly enjoy Ben's leadership about, you know, we've made some decisions about saying we can't do everything and we can't do everything now. So I think, you know, there is, there is so far you could go. I think this focusing in on a certain bit of it has been um, helpful and useful. But the scope is, is scary. Right? I think that is one of the big challenges. Um, I think the idea, the, your, your point here about embedding rigour and building that confidence, embedding it, it's a huge change project, really, because we are in a world in which people do still associate evaluation with making a case for their work, and that is their primary driver for it. That's a big culture change to ask people to start thinking about reflective practice as the main driver. It, there, there, are, there are a few pioneers who believe it and do it, I think, you know, so that's, that, that feels to me um, important. I think one of the things that people asked us all the way through the work we've done on the evaluation principles and the consultative sessions was to triangulate what funders ask for and say to their fundees. 
this notion not just proportionality but you know being, being able to have a conversation like two grown-ups talking together rather than the parent-child relationship that comes with that I don't know would you say some more stuff about fun Dubai and is this you know would you say, it's just not not just that is it it's to it's kind of rolling out the principles isn't it we were aware that you know we could create these these lovely kind of Pollyanna type principles and as Anne says what's not to like but if if people don't use them if funders don't almost mandate organizations to engage with them then you know our job isn't done so over the next couple of years we're going to work with networks of funders to really try and encourage them to embrace them and adopt them and argue that they absolutely speak to those funders uh, policies and strategies and you've mentioned the disconnections between sector and uh, uh, the, the academy and policymakers, and of course policymakers in different countries as well. I mean, I, I would say that we've, I, I think, you know, I think we've made some really good progress given that the biggest challenge of all is three full-time people, you know, so it's yeah. like a kind of, you know. But so, COVID did so, really help, didn't it? Yeah. So we, we were struggling, you know, with, with the Department for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport pre-pandemic to really get their ear. They, you know, they were, they were a bit suspicious of the centre they really did want us to look at um, economic impact and econometric methodologies, and we were really resistant to that, um, kind of, you know, ideologically, really. So it didn't, it got off to a bit of a bumpy start, and then COVID hit, and they realised, you know, that they, they didn't understand the infrastructure of the cultural sector, they were really struggling to advise the Treasury on how, to, how and where to target relief funding for... You know, they, they were shocked by the number and magnitude of freelancers, for example, and the key role they play in the creative industries. So very quickly, that opened doors, didn't it, yeah. with, with DCMS? And they, I mean, to be fair to them, they also challenged back to us saying, look, academics have sat on knowledge and information for too long. You can't do that in a pandemic. We've seen that, obviously, with, with health uh, experts. So they, you know, they kind of threw the challenge back to us to say, yeah. you need to share your findings in real time so we can make a difference now, not next month or when you published in two years. So, so it's, again, it's radically been developed yeah, that relationship. Absolutely, and sort of understanding of the plight of these two different sectors and what can we do about it in the space between them. And I think, we've, you know, that, that was COVID-generated, but that's been really important learning. Anyway, on that note, we'd, uh, I'd love to have a bit more of a conversation if we have time. It looks as though we do. Uh, thank you for listening to us, but uh, please, we'd love to hear from you, I think. question I think we're, we're certainly struggling with big place-based programs like creative people and places to do that 
Um, some, some of it is that you know, longer term investment and evaluation training, CPD. And as Anne said, you know, we, we were really pleasantly surprised by the, not just you know, this, we need to do it better, give us the toolkits, and we said we're not doing toolkits, but a, a really genuine uh, and ambitious kind of engagement with questions and evaluations in the sector. You know, people asking us how to do narrative inquiry, for example. So that was, you know, I think, I think the will is there, it, particularly in smaller organisations. The time isn't there, the skills aren't always there. But I think that this is something we're grappling with, is this kind of how do you aggregate is, I think, what you're getting at, isn't it? And um, let's be honest, a lot of large organisations also do this really badly. Uh, very few have, you know, properly trained data analysts working for them. And even then, uh, a lot of those teams seem to have disappeared in the pandemic, actually, or been reduced. So there's something, I mean, our last challenge, I think, on here was this idea for Alan Brown uh, often talks about this kind of broken knowledge management system. Um, and one of the things we are trying to do is say, you know, what, who is evaluation for and what do we do with it? How can we become a sector that is reflexive, you know, that does absolutely learn from its own mistakes and, and successes? So there's something about... Ideally, I think we would want to not just do the first stage, which is have better evaluation, more rigorous, robust evaluation that's credible to funders and policymakers, especially outside the cultural sector, but to make it available to meta-evaluation. So that we're talking to funders at the moment, uh, Esme Fairbairn, actually, about how to build another platform where we can get you know, some of these significant evaluation reports and open those up for content analysis meta uh, evaluation. So, I, you know, I think it can be done. And I think the other, my other, you'll have some thoughts, I'm sure. I, but I do. <laughs> the other thing, of course, is, is, is who is evaluation for? And, I, you know, if, if small organisations are just feeding it back into their practice and into all of those freelancers who fly in and out of organisations, they're kind of job done. You know, they're going to be better uh, organisations and that good practice will hopefully kind of disseminate out. Yeah, I, I suppose I, was, I, I think you know Jeffrey's fundamental question about who wants to know, you know, who wants to know and why, why is, is ultimately it, isn't it? I, I, I think in some of our work as the audience agency, you know, in a way, what we wanted to do was to kind of create a hygiene tool where you could easily report things like numbers, population, you know, do that quickly, easily, uh, as, as as kind of frictionlessly as possible, in order that you do free people up to sit to organisations up to say, you know, when, when I do evaluation on my projects, I, I'm all about the learning, but we do need a funding environment that rewards that, you know, so I think there's a, you know, we understand that you need to be able to report, you need to know what the public impact was, uh, you need to have good big data sets to refer to, but actually, if we could if we could agree to do that at scale, in my view, because I, I invented a thing that you can do to scale that. So, um, but then we can we and then we encourage people to genuinely develop a learning culture. But we know that we need our funders to go with us on that journey. I think. So. And just to pick up on Martin's very good question, are you facilitating lateral learning connections between small organisations independently of having to come back to you as a point of reference? In other words, can one organisation pick up evaluation methods from another without referring back to a, a central authority? Yeah, I, I think that idea of a peer network, we keep coming back to it yeah. and thinking we, that, that's, that's why it's one of our aspirations, because I think it's, it's a beautiful idea. I mean, I think in, in, in a sense you get from the, the fundees, there's about 10, I think, organisations that will be able to do that. Because you've got a, a kind of core group of people that have this sort of stellar treatment, but it, we're clearly building out a network. And we thought, actually, that the notion of a... Uh, yeah, the, the sort of the, the lateral network is 
there's definitely a need for um, evaluators for hire to be part of that network, people who are specialists. And I think that is a little bit different from people inside organisations. But you kind of need both, both, both groups of people feel like they could do with it. So I think that's definitely an aspiration for us. I know I saw, yes, so go ahead, loud as you can as we're not uh, using microphones. Yeah, hi, thank you, Gary, uh, and you like Galway and uh, Irish Research Council. This is a question that's going to come up at various stages today, but I was wondering if you could comment on aspects of the, or instruments, if I can put it that way, that don't exist in Ireland. Um, I was thinking particularly of <coughs> REF and impact case studies, which are often supported by institutions, which have a you know, fi financial uh, stake, shall we say, <coughs> and the NESTA and DCMS, which you mentioned. How important are they to your work? Are they really fundamental to actually the endeavor that you're proposing, or are they really adjacent to it in some way? Thanks, Dan. Apologies for not recognizing you with your mask no, no, on. I, but that's a question very much on our mind because, you know, we don't yet have the punitive evaluation systems in academia in Ireland that obviously you're familiar with. So there is already a cultural differentiation, I suppose, Dan, um, that we might be addressing. Yeah, uh, I, I guess, I mean, with a, with a different power, I'm, I'm the kind of ref head for my department, so I, I, we always talk about ref as a game we've got to play really well, but it is a game, uh, and it, you know, it doesn't capture the best and the, and the you know, diversity of the research that goes on in our institutions. Um, it, it's like any league table, isn't it? There are, there are rules, and if you, if you want to play the game, you've got to play it really well. I suppose as a centre, we're in the, we're in the business of impactful research, so I would like to think, you know, much as curiosity-driven research is, is absolutely vital and always needs to be funded and supported, uh, that's not what we're looking at. We're looking at, you know, we, we're a pragmatic centre, we need research, uh, we, we need to work with academic researchers to help them work with cultural sector organisations to produce something of mutual value. So I'd like to think we're, we're actually, we will be creating some of these future ref impact case studies. Um, while still, you know, being uh, uh, usefully sceptical about ref, uh, uh, you know, and all the problems that come with it. Yeah, Mary, go ahead. Thanks very much, and thank you very much indeed for a very stimulating discussion. So I think, as Dan says, there are lessons here for, for Ireland, and I think you've uh, been writing on this uh, topic of research for public policy from an Irish perspective. And it, and you've identified, I think, some of the, well, all of the really important things, but I just wanted to ask you in particular about two of them. Um, as I understood it from what you said, you basically built a framework for dialogue between three sets of important stakeholders. So I wondered um, if you had any comments about the kind of challenges in her that you faced in doing that, because that's not an easy thing to do. And, and specifically, your challenge of having a conversation with the policy-making system, because having worked in that system for years, I know how difficult it can be to, to get those connections. So if you could just comment briefly about how you interact with the policy-making system. And the second thing I wanted to ask you about again briefly was this, this theme that you've identified, which I think is really, really important. Uh, certainly in an Irish context of knowledge management and knowledge brokering. And you seem to have some very useful uh, practical steps there. So again, maybe you, you talk about your starting point, you know, and 
and, and how you got going on some of these things I think would be very relevant and interesting. And thank you. Nice easy question there from Mary <laughs> Yeah, thanks for that. Um, it, it's a brilliant question and, and in hindsight we didn't build enough uh, money and expertise into the into the bid uh, in terms of policy engagement. You know, I haven't done, to be honest, a lot of direct policy engagement myself. So it was it was a really steep learning curve. Um, and again, you know, the game changer was the pandemic actually, because policymakers needed us. So we built relationships very very quickly. Um, and how did we do it? I mean, we partly did it through placement. So we had. A research team of about 25 academics, including about four or five postdocs, working on that project, uh, and we had them all virtually placed in culture teams in the formations um, and in local councils. So, someone in Leeds City Council and a postdoc in Greater Manchester Combined Authority. So, I guess, like anything, it was about you know, it's people to people, isn't it? It's about building relationships, and that takes a long time, except in the pandemic, it happened really rapidly. So we were kind of lucky. I mean, one of the silver linings of the pandemic for us was that, you know, that rapid policy engagement and policymakers' acknowledgement of the need for really timely research. Um, but it isn't easy. And one of the things we really struggle with is the completely different ideological positions of the four nations. You know, England is a case apart. It is, I think, you know, notoriously pragmatic, pretty instrumentalist in its cultural policy. Um, whereas, you know, in Wales and Scotland, you, you don't need to make the case for culture. It, it's a given. In England, you really still have to justify to the Treasury. Um, so, so one of our challenges is to, you know, to translate and to, and to tweak our findings to, to fit those different ideologies, which are fundamentally different. Um, so it's, it's work in progress. And how we bring people together, I mean... When we, when, when we look at our kind of you know, data analytics and website analytics and events, we tend to get pretty much 50% of our audiences are cultural sector, 25% academic and 25% cultural policy makers. So, so we kind of are doing it. I think that's what we would have wanted. Again, we, we're probably lucky in that we, near all of our events since those first four scoping events have been online. So I suppose you don't get that physical, you know, Discord, you sometimes do. You did used to get at those events where you were bringing those different audiences into the same space. So, I suppose there's been a bit of kind of digital anonymity that's really helped to smooth the waves. I suppose, and a difference in a sense is we can be a single go-to place where, if you are a funder or policymaker, you can put your research question to us in the way that where else do you, how do you signpost across the whole all, you know, the whole academy it's really difficult to do so I think I think that um, even had the, the acceleration exaggeration effect of COVID-19 is true for, for us as much as anything else but actually I think the, the one-stop shop the simple idea of a one-stop shop uh, you know because there's this terrible sense that people's expectations are wildly over what we can actually do but nevertheless I think that's been really useful and I think that having those three, you know, a, a trust fund, a very influential trust foundation, um, uh, you know, the major arts funder in in the in the UK, and the HRC, you know, the, the research council as our funders and stakeholders, has actually been quite. That's been an important part of it. So that coalition, you know, they don't want to talk to each other. They they they're quite enjoying having that conversation. I think at that sort of level as well. So there. So there is something about the positioning which I think you've brilliantly leveraged, you know. As, as it's a kind of safe space, isn't it, for that? I mean, just practically, another thing we did at the beginning was when we were kind of doing the brand development was some persona work. 
So, you know, I had a comms, we had, we had a picture of a really difficult artist who would say we were overly instrumentalising everything. We had, you know, a, a disenfranchised academic, we had a policy maker, and we really tried to address, you know, what, where can we add value for these different, uh, different audiences? And we, we don't always get it right, we can't. Um, and we accept that. We certainly haven't got, you know, diversity right, for example, in the core team or, you know, the research team. So we've, we've got decades of work to do, as we all know, around diversity in, in academia, especially in arts and humanities and in the cultural sector. But we're, we're, we're trying. And, and something, we didn't, something we didn't talk very much about was how, um, not just our, you know, you did our ethos, but actually that, that ethos thing has carried through to the way in which we've done a lot of our engagement work. So we've had a brilliant, um, our head of engagement um, is, has been a really fantastic influence, I think, in terms of saying, we will not do events where we talk at you. No, our, our events, when we engage, they will be about listening as much as they have been about talking, so talking a lot. But you know, that, so there's been something, I do think- That's hard for academics, isn't it? To make academics shut up, yeah. me include, you know, it's, we, we give people five minutes. So there's lots of kind of micro learning and, uh, and yeah, we don't talk at people. Every event we do has to be really interactive, um, with space for you know dialogue. May I pick up on the, the four nations question because it loomed obviously in the challenges that Anne raised, and you mentioned it again, Ben, and you referred to the, the situation with that Welsh difference in uh, your talk. Mm. Um, but when mm. I panicked slightly when I was introducing you earlier, because I suddenly thought, wait a minute, a United Kingdom agency and the national agency, particularly after Brexit, mm. surely have to be two different things. And for historical and demographic reasons, Scotland, Wales, and we're going to be talking about this later, I know, the situation in Northern Ireland, have very different landscapes for what culture is, let alone how we value it. So is that creating tension, and do you foresee, sorry Stephen, I'm jumping on your territory, do you foresee a kind of de devolution happening? In, um, in cultural evaluation? It's a great question, isn't it? Uh, you know, there's so much common ground, isn't there? And again, especially post-COVID, I think around the world, in terms of cultural policy, we're all grappling with those big questions of, of place shaping, of, you know, well-being, etc. So, so there is enough common ground, I think, for a UK-wide agency. And one of our, you know, most useful tools, I guess, is the ability to leverage great practice from Wales and try and, you know, nudge DCMS in England to take culture more seriously and, and put it at the top table. So it's very helpful. It's, it, the, the challenge for us is resources as ever. You know, we haven't got enough academics embedded in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland. I, mean, I, I worked for 10 years in Scotland and did my PhD at Glasgow, so I can kind of just about get away with it. Uh, I'm a Northern English man, so that helps too. So Scotland's actually easier. Wales it is very, very different. And when we did the scoping events and we asked about these themes, what we heard back was very much, you know, questions of social justice, of heritage, and, and the link between heritage and identity. Probably closer to, to questions of cultural value here, but again, I don't want to tread on your... Uh, toes and encroaching your territory. So yeah, it's a brilliant question. It may well devolve in in time, as as may the nations themselves, of course. But at the moment, we're doing our utmost to make sure that we try and share best practice from across the four nations because it's a really useful mixed ecology. Well, it, it will have implications for how we talk about 
what transfers and what won't transfer to an Irish context. We've time for another quick question. Yes. Matthew Corrigan, I'm one of Dr. Hammond's students. Uh, I just had a good question. You were talking a second ago about how it's quite difficult for you to get diversity right. And I noticed in your evaluation principles uh, under people-centred, you had a parenthetical, which was diversity aware. So I was just wondering if it was a conscious decision to put diversity aware rather than listing diversity itself as one of those. So I'm just going to repeat that question, Matthew, because uh, it's on diversity aware versus listing diversity as, a, as an ambition in itself. Very interesting distinction, I suppose. I, I think, uh, so I don't know quite it was, why, why it was hanging parenthesized in it, 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 as it was there. I mean, it's just, it is one of the principles. Uh, but I, I think the point is that um, it, it is, it, in terms of the, the, the principles, is that whatever project you're working on, that you know, there needs to be one of the filters you're thinking about is who you know, sort of in, in the broadest sense, dealing with the capital, with the capital and, and a small D kind of thing, you know. Um, so I, so I don't think it was, I don't think there's any sense in which it was um, uh, at the bottom of the list, or you know, I mean, it's it's, it's clearly it's it's. I mean, I think there's a bit of debate about it. So obvious, do we need to say it? It's like yes, we do need to say it, you know. But um, I think there's another issue around, you know, it, it what's. It is a it is a very white practice, you know. I think there are there are lots of cultural practitioners that come from, you know, more uh, certainly uh, cultural ethnicity mixed backgrounds, but um, the research field is very very narrow indeed. So it's something that we do have quite a big. We know it's a big issue, but we have ambitions to try and do something about it. But it's a it's a serious challenge, and I think again, can we take on you know, can we take on the battles? But it feels to us, I think, that that's a very important one. You know, you can't talk about those principles and then not do something about research. You know, the, the, the research phase. You know. and, it, and it comes up everywhere, doesn't it? So even in you know research digest, for example, or arts and health, the vast majority of participants in those kind of programs are older white women. So that you know there is just huge gap again, huge gaps in knowledge. We just don't know about um, ethically diverse communities and impacts of arts and health because they're not privileged. They're often not even there. They're completely absent from that kind of research. So. It, it's huge, and when I say uh, we've got it wrong, it, it's, it's you know, things like our advisory group isn't as representative as we want it to be, um, our core team, the academics. We had to scrabble together this team you know, within about six weeks to put a bid in, which normally would have taken a year. Um, and you, know, you, you go to people you know, which is one of the big problems with diversity, of course. So the whole system mitigates against diversity, doesn't it? And we, all, we, all we can do is is learn, I think, and listen, and try we, and do we'd better. We'd like to make some positive interventions. I mean, we're thinking sort of, you know, ideally in a bursary programme, just to sort of think about the pipeline, you know, just try and think about that across the whole ecology. And, and thank you for being so frank about that very good question, and we're facing into the, the whole area of inclusive research at the moment, and, and it is not straightforward. We take a very quick question from the back, and then I know people are hungry. Please, loud as you can.
about not being included. And so, are you looking at all at the value also socially of social inclusion, especially for, say, migrants or ethnic minorities? And you kind of answered, but I think it's for, for Ireland as well, it would be really interesting to know is there an approach that you're thinking of that has a social aspect to it, like social inclusion aspect? Because uh, even what you described, I feel sometimes the policy is made by people to speak to themselves and the people who are actually benefiting are not listened to. And it, sometimes they are, but it finishes there. It doesn't continue to improve it. So. I think um, in terms of the, um, I think there's something to do with our focus as a, our thematic focus, which I'll let yeah. you speak to, but the, um, in terms of the principles, uh, that's absolutely what the driver is about saying, you know, we, it, it, good evaluation in our sector is about the people, beneficiaries first, you know, if, if you're doing something with or for a community, they have to be the kings and queens in the evaluation picture, and that that is really that's you can see the best shot right way through the principles. I think, you know, I mean, as I say, saying it is relatively easy. I mean, I suppose it's a, it's great that we all, you know, there was no doubt in that group of people's minds that those things that those principles had to be there. I think doing it is much more challenging, and that's why I'm quite interested to start to have these conversations about where people are really doing it, and being really honest about what the on the ground challenges are. You know, not least resources, confidence. You know, finding the right language, all those sorts of things. So, I, so I think, I think, you know, I don't want I don't, your principles are great, but I think, I think the, the 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 big the big steep hill is the actual putting those things into practice in meaningful ways. I think. Yeah, I think the obvious example is is our Collaborate Fund, um, and it was it was really heartening actually to see so many. I think we had about 170 applications from that, um, and a good chunk of those were absolutely those kinds of projects that you're talking about. Um, and, and one that springs to mind that we did shortlist was from Liverpool Biennial. Um, and they, their kind of research question was, you know, what, what does a biennial look like post-COVID, where our focus is less on international audiences and more on uh, marginalised communities in Liverpool? Um, another Liverpool one was looking at engaging working-class audiences. So, again, organisations are asking these questions of themselves, and I think our job is to help them research those questions in a rigorous way, you know, with by matching them with anthropologists and ethnographers and human geographers or you know, whatever it takes. Um, critical gender studies, one of the projects is looking at um, you know, the role of, of objects in museums and, and issues of, of sexism, for example. So yeah, the, the, that 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 thinking is there, isn't it? And our job really is to broker, I think. And and we're also going to do one of our research digests looking at the social world of the artist. Um, so yeah, very much part of our thinking. And you're right in terms of the, the policy disconnect. Thanks for the question. Look, the, these questions I know are going to roll into the rest of the day. And I hope people will pick them up uh, over lunch as well. And uh, we've got, I hope, Quiva, some sandwich, a few sandwiches and tea and coffee just outside here. So you're welcome to have that, to go out for a bit of fresh air, uh, to uh, continue the discussion. We're aiming to start again at 2 o'clock, uh, so please be back here for 2 o'clock. Um, but uh, just uh, in closing now, Anne and Ben, I'm just so grateful to you because this has really 
opened up from what Jeff started with this morning. And I know a lot of people will want to talk to you over the break. Thank you very much for coming over, and thank you very much for telling us about the work that you're doing at the Centre for Cultural Value. Okay. Cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral City. The hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next ten years.